Chapter Five of the Invasion by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Five: The Reign of Death. Through the whole afternoon, the heavy German artillery roared, belching forth their fiery vengeance upon London. Hour after hour they pounded away until St. Pancras Church was a heap of ruins and the founding hospital a veritable furnace, as well as the parcel post offices and the University College in Gower Street. In Hampstead Road many of the shops were shattered, and in Tottenham Court Road both Maples and Schoolbreds suffered severely, for shells bursting in the centre of the roadway had smashed every pane of glass in the fronts of both buildings. The quiet squares of Bloomsbury were in some cases great yawning ruins, houses with their fronts torn out revealing the shattered furniture within. Streets were indeed filled with tiles, chimney-pots, fallen telegraph wires, and debris of furniture, stone steps, paving stones, and fallen masonry. Many of the thoroughfares, such as the Pentonville Road, Copenhagen Street, and Holloway Road were, at points, quite impassable on account of the ruins that blocked them. Into the northern hospital in the Holloway Road a shell fell, shattering one of the wards, and killing or maiming every one of the patients in the ward in question, while the church in Tufnell Park Road was burning fiercely. Upper Holloway, Stoke Newington, Highbury, Kingsland, Dalston, Hackney, Clapton, and Stamford Hill were being swept at long range by the guns on Muswell Hill and Churchyard Bottom Hill, and the terror caused in those densely populated districts was awful. Hundreds upon hundreds lost their lives, or else had a hand, an arm, a leg blown away as those fatal shells fell in never-ceasing monotony, especially in Stoke Newington and Kingsland. The many side roads lying between Holloway Road and Finsbury Park, such as Hornsbury Road, Tullington Park, Andover, Durham, Palmerston, Campbell, and Fort Hill Roads, Seven Sisters Road, and Eildon Road were all devastated, for the guns for a full hour seemed to be trained upon them. The German gunners, in all probability, neither knew nor cared where their shells fell. From their position, now that the smoke of the hundreds of fires was now rising, they could probably discern but little. Therefore the batteries at Hampstead Heath, Muswell Hill, Wood Green, Cricklewood, and other places simply sent their shells as far distant south as possible into the panic-stricken city below. In Mount Grove and Riversdale Roads, Highbury Vale, a number of people were killed, while a frightful disaster occurred in the church at the corner of Park Lane and Milton Road, Stoke Newington. Here a number of people had entered, attending a special service for the success of the British arms, when a shell exploded on the roof, bringing it down upon them, and killing over fifty of the congregation, mostly women. The air, poisoned by the fumes of the deadly explosives, and full of smoke from the burning buildings, was ever and anon rent by explosions, as projectiles frequently burst in mid-air. The distant roar was incessant, like the noise of thunder, while on every hand could be heard the shrieks of defenseless women and children, or the muttered curses of some man who saw his home and all he possessed swept away with a flash and a cloud of dust. Nothing could withstand that awful cannonade. Walthamstow had been rendered untenable in the first half-hour of the bombardment, while in Tottenham the loss of life had been very enormous, 
the German gunners at Wood Green having apparently turned their first attention upon that place. Churches, the larger buildings, the railway station, in fact anything offering a mark, was promptly shattered, being assisted by the converging fire from the batteries at Chingford. On the opposite side of London, Notting Hill, Shepherd's Bush, and Starch Green were being reduced to ruins by the heavy batteries above Park Royal Station, which, firing across Wormwood Scrubs, put their shots into Notting Hill, and especially into Holland Park, where widespread damage was quickly wrought. A couple of shells falling into the generating station of the Central London Railway, or Tube, as Londoners usually call it, unfortunately caused a disaster and loss of life which were appalling. At the first sign of the bombardment, many thousands of people descended into the tube as a safe hiding place from the rain of shell. At first the railway officials closed the doors to prevent the inrush, but the terrified populace in Shepherd's Bush, Bayswater, Oxford Street and Holborn, in fact all along the subterranean line, broke open the doors, and descending by the lifts and stairs found themselves in a place which at least gave them security against the enemy's fire. The trains had long ago ceased running, and every station was crowded to excess, while many were forced upon the line itself and actually into the tunnels. For hours they waited there in eager breathlessness, longing to be able to ascend and find the conflict over. Men and women in all stations of life were huddled together, while children clung to their parents in wonder. Yet as hour after hour went by, the report from above was still the same the Germans had not ceased. Of a sudden, however, the light failed. The electric current had been cut off by the explosion of the shells in the generating station at Shepherd's Bush, and the lifts were useless. The thousands who, in defiance of the orders of the company, had gone below at Shepherd's Bush for shelter, found themselves caught like rats in a hole. True, there was the faint glimmer of an oil light here and there, but alas, that did not prevent an awful panic. Somebody shouted that the Germans were above and had put out the lights, and when it was found that the lifts were useless, a panic ensued that was indescribable. The people could not ascend the stairs, as they were blocked by the dense crowd, therefore they pressed into the narrow semicircular tunnels in an eager endeavor to reach the next station where they hoped they might escape. But once in there, women and children were quickly crushed to death, or thrown down and trampled upon by the press behind. In the darkness they fought with each other, pressing on and becoming jammed so tightly that many were held against the sloping walls until life was extinct. Between Shepherd's Bush and Holland Park stations the loss of life was worse, for being within the zone of the German fire the people had crushed in frantically in thousands, and with one accord a move had unfortunately been made into the tunnels on account of the foolish cry that the German were waiting above. The railway officials were powerless. They had done their best to prevent anyone going below, but the public had insisted, therefore no blame could be laid upon them for the catastrophe. At Marble Arch, Oxford Circus, and Tottenham Court Road stations a similar scene was enacted, and dozens upon dozens, alas, lost their lives in the panic. Ladies and gentlemen from Park Lane, Grosvenor Square, and Mayfair had sought shelter at the Marble Arch station, rubbing shoulders with laborers' wives and coster-women from the back streets of Marleborne. When the lights failed, a rush had been made into the tunnel to reach Oxford Circus, all exit by the stairs being blocked, 
as at Shepherd's Bush, on account of the hundreds struggling to get down. As at Holland Park, the terrified crowd fighting with each other became jammed and suffocated in the narrow space. The catastrophe was a frightful one, for it was afterwards proved that over four hundred and twenty persons, mostly weak women and children, lost their lives in those twenty minutes of darkness before the mains at the generating station, wrecked by the explosions, could be repaired. Then, when the current came up again, the lights revealed the frightful mishap, and people struggled to emerge from the burrows wherein they had so narrowly escaped death. Upon the Baker Street and Waterloo and other tubes every station had also been besieged. The whole of the first-mentioned line from north to south was a refuge of thousands who saw in it a safe place for retreat. The tunnels of the district railway, too, were filled with terror-stricken multitudes who descended at every station and walked away into a subterranean place of safety. No trains had been running for several days, therefore there was no danger from that cause. Meanwhile, the bombardment continued with unceasing activity. The Marlborne station of the Great Central Railway and the Great Central Hotel, which seemed to be only just within the line of fire, were wrecked, and about four o'clock it was seen that the hotel, like that at St. Pancras, was well alight, though no effort could be made to save it. At the first two or three alarms of fire the Metropolitan Fire Brigade had turned out, but now that fresh alarms were reaching the chief station every moment, the brigade saw themselves utterly powerless to even attempt to save the hundred buildings, great and small, now furiously blazing. Gasometers, especially those of the Gaslight and Coke Company at Kensal Green, were marked by the German gunners, who sent them into the air, while a well-directed petrol bomb at Wormwood Scrubs Prison set one great wing of the place alight, and the prisoners were therefore released. The rear of Kensington Palace and the fronts of a number of houses in Kensington Palace Gardens were badly damaged, while in the dome of the Albert Hall was a great ugly hole. Shortly after five o'clock occurred a disaster which was of national consequence. It could only have been a mishap on the part of the Germans, for they would certainly never have done such irreparable damage willingly as they destroyed what would otherwise have been most valuable of loot. Shots suddenly began to fall fast in Bloomsbury, several of them badly damaging the Hotel Russell and the houses near, and it was therefore apparent that one of the batteries which had been firing from near Jack Straw's castle had been moved across to Parliament Hill, or even to some point south of it, which gave a wider range to the fire. Presently a shell came high through the air and fell full upon the British Museum, striking it nearly in the centre of the front and in exploding carried away the Grecian Ionic ornament and shattered a number of the fine stone columns of the dark façade. Ere people in the vicinity had realized that the national collection of antiques was within range of the enemy's destructive projectiles, a second shell crashed into the rear of the building, making a great gap in the walls. Then, as though all the guns of that particular battery had converged in order to destroy our treasure-house of art and antiquity, shell after shell crashed into the place in rapid succession. Before ten minutes had passed, grey smoke began to roll out from beneath the long colonnade in front, and growing denser told its own tale. The British Museum was on fire. Nor was that all. As though to complete the disaster, although it was certain that the Germans were in ignorance, 
there came one of those terrible shells filled with petrol which, bursting inside the manuscript room, set the whole place ablaze. In a dozen different places the building seemed to be now alight, especially the library, and thus the finest collection of books, manuscripts, Greek and Roman and Egyptian antiques, coins, medals, and prehistoric relics lay at the mercy of the flames. The fire brigade was at once alarmed, and at imminent risk of their lives, for shells were still falling in the vicinity, they, with the salvage corps and the assistance of many willing helpers, some of whom unfortunately lost their lives in the flames, saved whatever could be saved, throwing the objects out into the railed-off quadrangle in front. The left wing of the museum, however, could not be entered, although, after most valiant efforts on the part of the firemen, the conflagrations that had broken out in other parts of the building were at length subdued. The damage was, however, irreparable, for many unique collections, including all the prints and drawings, and many of the medieval and historic manuscripts had already been consumed. Shots now began to fall as far south as Oxford Street, and all along that thoroughfare from Holborn as far as Oxford Circus, widespread havoc was being wrought. People fled for their lives back towards Charing Cross and the Strand. The Oxford Music Hall was a hopeless ruin, while a shell crashing through the roof of Frascati's restaurant carried away a portion of the gallery and utterly wrecked the whole place. Many of the shops in Oxford Street had their roofs damaged or their fronts blown out, while a huge block of flats in Great Russell Street was practically demolished by three shells striking in rapid succession. Then, to the alarm of all who realized it, shots were seen to be passing high over Bloomsbury, south towards the Thames. The range had been increased, for, as was afterwards known, some heavier guns had now been mounted upon Muswell Hill and Hampstead Heath, which, carrying to a distance of from six to seven miles, placed the city, the Strand, and Westminster within the zone of fire. The zone in question stretched roughly from Victoria Park, through Bethnal Green and Whitechapel, across to Southwark, the Borough, Lambeth, and Westminster to Kensington, and while the fire upon the northern suburbs slackened, great shells now came flying through the air into the very heart of london the german gunners at muswell hill took the dome of st paul's as a mark for shells fell constantly in ludgate hill in cheapside in newgate street and in the churchyard itself one falling upon the steps of the cathedral tore out two of the columns of the front while another striking the clock tower just below the face brought down much of the masonry and one of the huge bells with a deafening crash blocking the road with debris. Time after time the great shells went over the splendid cathedral, which the enemy seemed bent upon destroying, but the dome remained uninjured, though about ten feet of the top of the second tower was carried away. On the Cannon Street side of St. Paul's a great block of drapery warehouses had caught fire and was burning fiercely, while the drapers and other shops on the Paternoster Road side all had their windows shattered by the constant detonations. Within the cathedral two shells that had fallen through the roof had wrought havoc with the beautiful Reredos and the choir stalls, many of the fine windows being also wrecked by the explosions. Whole rows of houses in Cheapside suffered, while both the mansion house where the London flag was flying and the Royal Exchange were severely damaged by a number of shells which fell in the vicinity. The equestrian statue in front of the Exchange had been overturned, while the Exchange itself 
showed a great yawning hole in the corner of the façade near Cornhill. At the Bank of England a fire had occurred, but had fortunately been extinguished by the strong force of guards in charge, though they gallantly risked their lives in so doing. Lothbury, Gresham Street, Old Broad Street, Lombard Street, Gracechurch Street, and Leadenhall Street were all more or less scenes of fire, havoc, and destruction. The loss of life was not great in this neighborhood, for most people had crossed the river or gone westward, but the high explosives used by the Germans were falling upon shops and warehouses with appalling effect. Masonry was torn about like paper, ironwork twisted like wax, woodwork shattered to a thousand splinters, as time after time a great projectile hissed in the air and effected its errand of destruction. A number of the wharves on each side of the river were soon alight, and both upper and lower Thames streets were soon impassable on account of huge conflagrations. A few shells fell in Shoreditch, Houndsditch, and Whitechapel, and these in most cases caused loss of life in those densely populated districts. Westward, however, as the hours went on, the howitzers at Hampstead began to drop high-explosive shells into the strand around Charing Cross and in Westminster. This weapon had a caliber of 4.14 inches and threw a projectile of 35 pounds. The tower of St. Clement Dane's Church crashed to the ground and blocked the roadway opposite Milford Lane. The pointed roof of the clock tower of the law courts was blown away, and the granite fronts of the two banks opposite the law court's entrance were torn out by a shell which exploded in the footpath before them. Shells fell time after time, in and about the law courts themselves, committing immense damage to the interior, while the shell bursting upon the roof of Charing Cross Station rendered it a ruin as picturesque as it had been in December 1905. The National Liberal Club was burning furiously, the Hotel Cecil and the Savoy did not escape, but no material damage was done to them. The Garrick Theatre had caught fire, a shot carried away the globe above the Coliseum, and the shot tower beside the Thames crashed into the river. The front of the Grand Hotel in Trafalgar Square showed, in several places, great holes where the shell had struck, and a shell bursting at the foot of Nelson's Monument turned over one of the lions, overthrowing the emblem of Britain's might. The clubs in Pall Mall were, in one or two instances, wrecked, notably the Reform, the Junior Carlton, and the Athenium, into each of which shells fell through the roof and exploded within. From the number of projectiles that fell in the vicinity of the Houses of Parliament, it was apparent that the German gunners could see the Royal Standard flying from the Victoria Tower, and were making it their mark. In the west front of Westminster Abbey several shots crashed, doing enormous damage to the grand old pile. The hospital opposite was set alight, while the Westminster Palace Hotel was severely damaged, and two shells falling into St. Thomas's Hospital created a scene of indescribable terror in one of the overcrowded casualty wards. Suddenly one of the German high-explosive shells burst on top of the Victoria Tower, blowing away all four of the pinnacles and bringing down the flagstaff. Big Ben served as another mark for the artillery at Muswell Hill, and several shots struck it, tearing out one of the huge clock faces and blowing away the pointed apex of the tower. Suddenly, however, two great shells struck it right in the center, almost simultaneously near the base, and made such a hole in the huge pile of masonry that it was soon seen to have been rendered unsafe 
though it did not fall. Shot after shot struck other portions of the Houses of Parliament, breaking the windows and carrying away pinnacles. One of the twin towers of Westminster Abbey fell a few moments later, and another shell crashing into the choir completely wrecked Edward the Confessor's shrine, the coronation chair, and all the objects of antiquity in the vicinity. The old horse guards escaped injury, but one of the cupolas of the new war office opposite was blown away, while shortly afterwards a fire broke out in the new local government building and education offices. Number 10 Downing Street, the chief centre of the government, had its windows all blown in, a grim accident, no doubt, the same explosion shattering several windows in the foreign office. Many shells fell in St. James's and Hyde Parks, exploding harmlessly, but others, passing across St. James's Park, crashed into that high building, Queen Anne's Mansions, causing fearful havoc. Somerset House, Covent Garden Market, Drury Lane Theatre, and the Gaiety Theatre and Restaurant all suffered more or less, and two of the bronze foot guards guarding the Wellington statue at Hyde Park Corner were blown many yards away. Around Holborn Circus immense damage was being caused, and several shells bursting on the viaduct itself blew great holes in the bridge. So widespread indeed was the havoc that it is impossible to give a detailed account of the day's terrors. If the public building suffered, the damage to property of householders and the ruthless wrecking of quiet English homes may well be imagined. The people had been driven out from the zone of fire and had left their possessions to the mercy of the invaders. South of the Thames very little damage was done. The German howitzers and long-range guns could not reach so far. One or two shots fell in York Road, Lambeth, and in the Waterloo and Westminster Bridge roads, but they did little damage beyond breaking all the windows in the vicinity. When would it end? Where would it end? Half the population of London had fled across the bridges, and from Denmark Hill, Champion Hill, Norwood, and the Crystal Palace they could see the smoke issuing from the hundred fires. London was cowed. These northern barricades, still held by bodies of valiant men, were making a last desperate stand, though the streets ran with blood. Every man fought well and bravely for his country, though he went to his death. A thousand acts of gallant heroism on the part of Englishmen were done that day, but alas, all to no purpose. The Germans were at our gates and were not to be denied. As daylight commenced to fade, the dust and smoke became suffocating and yet the guns pounded away with a monotonous regularity that appalled the helpless populace. Overhead there was a quick whizzing in the air, a deafening explosion, and as the masonry came crashing down the atmosphere was filled with poisonous fumes that half asphyxiated all those in the vicinity. Hitherto the enemy had treated us on the whole humanely, but finding that desperate resistance in the northern suburbs, von Kronhelm was carrying out the Emperor's parting injunction. He was breaking the pride of our own dear London, even at the sacrifice of thousands of innocent lives. The scenes in the streets within that zone of awful fire baffled description. They were too sudden, too dramatic, too appalling. Death and destruction were everywhere, and the people of London now realized for the first time what the horrors of war really meant. Dusk was falling. Above the pall of smoke from burning buildings 
the sun was setting with a blood-red light. From the London streets, however, this evening sky was darkened by the clouds of smoke and dust. Yet the cannonade continued, each shell that came hurtling through the air exploding with deadly effect and spreading destruction on all hands. Meanwhile, the barricades at the north had not escaped von Kronhelm's attention. About four o'clock he gave orders by field telegraph for certain batteries to move down and attack them. This was done soon after five o'clock, and when the German guns began to pour their deadly rain of shell into those hastily improvised defences, there commenced a slaughter of the gallant defenders that was horrible. At each of the barricades shell after shell was directed, and very quickly breaches were made. Thereupon the defenders themselves the fire was directed, a withering, awful fire from quick-firing guns which none could withstand. The streets, with their barricades swept away, were strewn with mutilated corpses. Hundreds upon hundreds had attempted to make a last stand, rallied by the Union Jack they waved above, but a shell exploding in their midst had sent them to instant eternity. Many a gallant deed was done that day by patriotic Londoners, in defense of their homes and loved ones, many a deed that should have earned the V.C., but in nearly all cases the patriot who had stood up and faced the foe had gone to straight and certain death. Till seven o'clock the dull roar of the guns in the north continued, and people across the Thames knew that London was still being destroyed, nay, pulverized. Then, with an accord, came a silence, the first silence since the hot noon. Von Kronhelm's field telegraph at Jack Straw Castle had ticked the order to cease firing. All the barricades had been broken. London lay burning at the mercy of the German eagle. And as the darkness fell, the German commander-in-chief looked again through his glasses and saw the red flames leaping up in dozens of places where whole blocks of shops and buildings, public institutions, whole streets in some cases were being consumed. London, the proud capital of the world, the home of the Englishman, was at last ground beneath the iron heel of Germany. And all, alas, due to one cause alone, the careless insular apathy of the Englishman himself. End of chapter 5 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com